Hello and welcome to Amplifying the Past, a regular series of conversations on history brought to you by the History Department at Boston University. I'm Benjamin Siegel, a historian of South Asian and transnational history and one of our regular hosts. In each episode of Amplifying the Past, we'll be diving deep into one corner of history and some of the ways we and our colleagues have been working to tell it. And along the way, we'll be introducing you to some of the new ideas that are exciting us as well as our colleagues elsewhere. Few acts touch lives in as profound a way as adoption does. And while the act is at its core a personal one, it's also fundamentally structured by the worlds of law which surround it. Over the course of the 20th century, for adoptive parents in the global north, those worlds were increasingly international. In the late 20th century, international adoption from the global south to wealthy western nations became increasingly common. At its peak in 2004, over 20,000 children were adopted to the United States from around the world. Scarred by armed conflict and genocide, Guatemala became a key source country for adopted children in the United States. The scale of Guatemala's adoptions, carried out through the only privatized adoption system in the world, was massive. At one point, nearly one in every 100 Guatemalan children was placed abroad for adoption. The global population of Guatemalan adoptees swelled, spread throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe. There are about 40,000 Guatemalan adoptees living around the world. My colleague Rachel Nolan, an assistant professor of history at Boston University's Pardee School of International Relations, is the author of Until I Find You, Disappeared Children and Coercive Adoptions in Guatemala, due out next year from Harvard University Press. Professor Nolan unravels the complex and harrowing history of how Guatemala became such a large sender of children to the United States, Canada, and Europe until the end of the private trade in 2007. She draws on a trove of innovative archival sources to show how the roots of Guatemala's adoption system lie in the particulars of the country's 40-year armed conflict and genocide against its indigenous Maya population. The story is often grim. Throughout the conflict, thousands of Maya children were murdered, while others were disappeared by the military and illegally adopted. The guise of adoption became a tool of political repression, and later, as the conflict subsided, private actors were allowed to arrange international adoptions in a largely unregulated system. There's a lot that's difficult to read in Until I Find You. It's a damning account of the abuses that became endemic to Guatemalan adoptions, from falsified documents to lawyers who threatened vulnerable and often indigenous mothers. But Professor Nolan writes with measured compassion for those caught up in this system, working through the complicated questions on choices in a climate of violence and poverty. It's an unflinching account of loss, exploitation, and struggle over children in Guatemala that also sheds new light on the politics and history of transnational adoption. I'm looking forward to speaking with Rachel Nolan today. Rachel, welcome to Amplifying the Past. Could you introduce the book to our listeners and tell us a little bit about how you came to this project? First of all, thank you so much for having me. This book is a history of how so many Guatemalan children became adoptable from the period 1960s to 2007. And how I came to this project, as with most historical research, was kind of sideways and going down wandering paths. I grew up in the United States. I learned very bad Spanish in high school in the Boston area. And I started traveling to first Mexico uh, when I had graduated from college and became a fairly unsuccessful freelance reporter. It was sort of halfway functioning for me, halfway not. I had the very lucky opportunity to live in Mexico City between 2010 and 2012. And I started to travel in the kind of southern areas of Mexico as well, Chiapas, along the border with Guatemala, and became very interested in evangelical Christian communities there that had broken off from their Catholic counterparts. 
And so when I entered graduate school to study Latin American history at NYU, a couple of years later, I had proposed to my advisor, maybe I'll write about uh, Pentecostal Christians in the region. Maybe I'll write about Guatemala rather than Southern Mexico. And my advisor kept pushing me, saying very rightly that there was good writing and scholarship on some of those issues. And what were the Pentecostals up to? What were they doing? What were they involved in? So I first started learning about adoptions and becoming curious about not just how so many people had been converted, but once converted, what were the kind of local and international structures that some of these people were involved in? I'm wondering if you could begin by telling us the story of Dolores Priat. Dolores Priat is a Belgian adoptee from Guatemala who was adopted in the 1980s and never had much interest in traveling back to Guatemala to find her birth family. However, as she grew older and became interested in having a family of her own, she did decide to go back to search. And in the early 2000s, she bought a plane ticket to Guatemala. She did not speak much Spanish. What she did not realize was that her birth family speaks Quiche, one of the 22 indigenous languages in Guatemala. And what she certainly did not realize was that she'd been um, trafficked as a child um, and kidnapped for international adoption. So Dolores took a plane to Guatemala using her adoption file as a guide to attempt to find her birth family. That's often the only documentation that adoptees have. And it listed an address. She followed the address and knocked on the door. And the woman who answered the door said, look, the woman who's listed as your birth mother on this adoption file never gave up a child for adoption. There must be a mistake. But the family that lives across the street in Zunil, this small town in Guatemala, had a child kidnapped years ago. And the dates coincide. Is it possible that you are their child? And Dolores went next door and found a woman with a face almost exactly like hers, it was her sister. And in fact, DNA testing proved that her birth mother was the neighbor of the woman who had posed as her mother to relinquish her for adoption. So I think for a North American audience, this requires a little bit of explanation. The private adoption system in Guatemala relied on women who worked with private lawyers to effectively source children for what was a for-profit market. And Dolores Prat's mother's neighbor who was named uh, Rosario Kolopchim, was working as a baby broker, effectively. And most baby brokers worked in Guatemala by coercing women, by offering women the opportunity to give up a child for adoption. The line between coercion and consent is not always terribly clear. Rosario Kolopchim was quite unusual in that she kidnapped a child for adoption. And the reason for that is that lawyers would pay a lump sum for a child who was made available for private adoption. And some of the lawyers didn't ask very many questions. So Dolores' case is unusual in the sense that she was kidnapped for adoption. It's also unusual in the sense that she found her birth family. And third kind of unusual part is that she was able to successfully prosecute the woman who served as a baby broker in her case, who is now serving a major jail sentence in Guatemala. So you trace the origins of Guatemala's international adoption regime to the 1950s. It's against the backdrop of a CIA-backed coup, a global rise in what you describe as baby lift events, and the story of a toddler that was adopted by a Swedish couple. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of this system and how that small adoption program at the Elisa Martinez uh, orphanage turned into something much larger? So, of course, Guatemala is not the only country in the world that had an international adoption program. Famously, South Korea, China, Russia have all had major and large international adoption programs. And the Guatemalan program started out very similarly to its counterparts in South Korea. It was a public-run program through the Ministry of Social Welfare, drawing on orphanages. So very much in contrast to the private system I just described, 
in the beginning, children were coming from orphanages and in many cases were either genuinely orphaned or had parents that economically couldn't care for them or were in an orphanage for another reason. The 1954 coup in Guatemala overturned a democratically elected government there and helped destabilize the country. And what we ended up with in Guatemala was a 36-year civil war that was incredibly brutal, lasting from 1960 to 1996. 200,000 people were killed during that civil war. And uh, later Truth Commission reports found that it had overwhelmingly been an episode of state terror. So of course there were abuses by the left-wing guerrilla forces that were attempting to overthrow a series of military dictatorships. This is a pattern that's familiar from other countries in Cold War Latin America. But in the Guatemalan case, there is an additional aspect that half of the population is indigenous. So the 36-year civil war in Guatemala escalated into a genocide against Mayan peoples in the early 1980s, in part because the military government suspected that Maya indigenous people would be somehow more susceptible to communist ideology, which was never true, but that was a kind of fear at the time. How does this link into the adoption system and the orphanage system that was set up? The military dictatorships that were set up after the 1954 CIA coup opened social welfare programs. And that sounds contradictory, right? You think of that as a kind of social democratic program rather than a military dictatorship. But if you think back to the 1960s, it was the time of the Alliance for Progress. The United States was interested in funding poverty reduction programs in Latin America such that the appeal of communism would be less. And one of the big fears at the time was a population boom throughout Latin America. The idea being if families were large, communism would be more attractive because people would have less to eat. This sounds somewhat reductionist to us now, but it helped drive a military dictatorship in Guatemala to open a quite small um, program, first housing orphans in an orphanage. And then later, you can see by reading the annual reports of the Ministry of Social Welfare, that they viewed the international adoption program as effectively a cost-cutting measure. Once a child was adopted abroad, they no longer had to be cared for at the expense of the Guatemalan government. So there's a major transformation to that system then that seems to take place in the 1970s. There is an earthquake in 1976, and then Guatemala's very unique private adoption system begins to take form. Can you tell me about that transformation and the particular role of Jaladoras in that process? I was very interested to read the Guatemalan congressional debates from the 1970s because it's a strange moment at which after an earthquake in 1976 that was a major disaster, much of the capital was destroyed, people were living in tent cities, many people were made homeless. There was also an influx of foreign missionaries, including many evangelical Christians from the United States. And so some of those evangelical Christians helped set up some of the early networks for private adoption to place children from Guatemala with U.S. families. Guatemalan lawyers wanted to facilitate this process. And you can see reading the congressional records that the lawyers who served in Congress as politicians saw that there was a profit possibility here. So it's fairly clear when reading the debates, the terms of the debate are all in terms of humanitarianism. So the terms of the debate say that the old system of adoptions through the Elisa Martinez orphanage is too slow. And if you read the adoption records from the earlier period, it's true. Adoptions could take up to two years to finalize. So it's not as if there's no debate here. But what private lawyers said is we should pass this new law completely privatizing adoption, meaning no judicial oversight for adoption. All you need for an adoption from Guatemala from 1977 to 2007 is a private lawyer who will match the foreign family to the child 
and do all of the paperwork for the adoption and then have it rubber stamped by the attorney general's office before that child exits. There is crucially participation by the foreign embassies because they have to provide the exit visa paperwork. So perhaps we'll talk a little bit later about the involvement of the U.S. embassy in some of these systems. But you can see this law was passed and private adoption became legal in Guatemala, kind of with the excuse of the earthquake, um, but also because there was a real need for faster adoptions. Private lawyers seized the opportunity. Private adoptions were legalized in 1977. And immediately you see private adoptions overtaking public adoptions through the orphanage in numbers. The public orphanage adoptions went on. You know, they went on through time and, and until adoptions were closed, those were still possible. But the private adoptions were enormously more popular, in part because what foreign families were looking for was a speedy adoption rather than a slow adoption, which makes sense. The darkest chapters of your book take place in the 1980s. Can you tell me about the Pinata case and the dynamics of the Civil War and the genocide that surrounded it? So some of the most difficult court records and adoption files to read date back to the 1980s, as you so rightly say. So in your previous question, you asked about Jaladoras, and, and that's a crucial figure for the Piñata case and for Dolores Preat's story, which I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion. Jaladora is the Spanish language word for baby broker. But if you translate it directly, it, it literally means puller, someone who grabs or pulls or yanks. So the idea was yanking a child who could be placed with um, a foreign family. And the Jaladores were incredibly important figures for private adoptions because once private lawyers were authorized to oversee um, foreign adoptions, the question became, how could they find an adoptable child? If they were no longer necessarily working with an orphanage, there are a lot of poor women in Guatemala who might be interested in giving up their child for adoption, who might be persuaded to give up their child for adoption. But private lawyers tended to be wealthy and lived in Guatemala City, right? They didn't have access to the kinds of communities where a lot of these children were going to come from. So they hired women in this role for the most part, some of whom were poor and indigenous, some of whom were wealthy and had links to the military dictatorship, some of whom were middle class and either indigenous or not. It, there was a kind of broad spread of women who worked in this role. But all of these women, from what I could tell from interviews and from court records from the 1980s, had a kind of similar approach. They would talk to a pregnant woman in a marketplace or in a bus stop and say, do you have other children? Do you have the means to feed this new child? Are you aware that there's this system through which you could place the child with a, uh, a private family? And I don't want to make this sound entirely malicious. Please keep in mind that at the time, Guatemalan women had no access to free or legal abortion and in many cases were living under severely constrained circumstances. So the kind of question of free will and what women were choosing at this given time can be very difficult to grasp. Nevertheless, through court cases, you can see that Haladoras were sometimes extremely predatory and would, in very extreme cases, resort to kidnapping children. But the vast majority of adoptions do not involve kidnapping, but rather involve some kinds of pressure or coercion. And so that's why I put that in the title. So that's one issue that has to do with the private adoptions. The second issue in the 1980s uh, relates to the genocide that I just mentioned. So human rights activists, um, lawyers, those who are concerned with Guatemalan politics in the 1980s and now all know very well that alongside the genocide in the early 1980s, an estimated 45,000 people were forcibly disappeared in the country. So that is generally thought of as having to do with adults, right? People who were suspected of being involved in the guerrilla movement. What's less known in the Guatemalan case is that an estimated 5,000 of those people were children. And if you look closely at the Truth Commission reports, which were done with great care and professionalism in Guatemala, 
There's one backed by the United Nations and a second backed by the Catholic Church. And they had very similar conclusions. And one of the conclusions was that of those estimated 5,000 children who are forcibly disappeared, at least 500 made their way into the adoption system, whether through the orphanages or through private adoptions. So what I was able to trace by consulting the adoption records for Guatemala for the years of the early 1980s is that you do see an uptick in the number of indigenous children from Ishil areas or other areas that were targeted by the genocide. And through interviews with former social workers, I was able to establish that they were closely in touch with the military, which is not something that always appears in the documentation. And in fact, after army massacres, social workers would come in and um, take surviving children and in some cases place them in informal adoptions and in some cases place them in formal international adoptions. So this is quite confusing because there's a broad array of things that could happen to indigenous children who were unfortunate enough to live in areas targeted by the army. But one of the things that did end up happening was their placement in international adoption. One of the things that you do so well in this book is unscramble some of the very complicated politics of 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 civil war, of genocide, and of these overlapping systems. One through line that's maybe difficult for those who are not specialists in Latin America and Guatemala is this question of the politics of indigeneity and how it figures through and how it's really shot through um, the book. Can you tell us a little bit more about those politics and and maybe connect that to the legacy of some of these systems today? Thank you for that question. It's hugely important. And I think for a North American audience, trying to even understand who's indigenous or not in Guatemala can be quite confusing because it's not a tribal-based system or a reservation-based system, as might be familiar in North America. On the contrary, nearly everyone in Guatemala has some Mayan uh, heritage, right? So it's not a question of blood or blood quantum, as is sometimes the case in Native communities in the U.S. Only the very, very wealthy elite who either imagine or really are fully descended from Spanish conquerors uh, are a kind of racial other. Really, pretty much everyone else you meet has some Mayan heritage. That said, there's a very strong divide in Guatemalan life between people who are considered indigenous and people who are considered Latino. Latino is a word that doesn't exist as a racial category. It has other meanings, but it doesn't exist as a racial category outside of Guatemala. So even if you are familiar with Latin American politics and racial identities, Latino only exists in Guatemala and all it means is non-Indigenous. So the definition has less to do with heritage and more to do with what clothing you wear. Indigenous women wear hand-woven, brightly colored clothing called traje. Men have lost the custom in many places, although there are areas like Tolos Santos Cuchumatan where men still wear the clothing. So what's important is clothing, place of origin, and um, crucially, language spoken. Many indigenous people in Guatemala are bilingual. Some are monolingual and speak only one of the 22 indigenous languages there. But if you come to Guatemala City and you are from an indigenous community, you can change your clothing and learn to speak fluent Spanish and you can live as a Ladino. You can be considered Ladino. So racial categories are both highly rigid. Racism in Guatemala is recognized as being one of the most intense forms of racism in the Americas. Discrimination is rife. You know, land theft is ongoing. Encroachment onto indigenous land for mining is ongoing. All of this. So racism is rigid, but the racial categories are somewhat mutable and in a way that is difficult for outsiders to understand. 
I'm wondering if I can ask you more about your methods and your own positionality in researching and writing the book. I'm an outsider to the field, but I know that the politics of archives are a huge deal in the historiography of Latin America broadly and Guatemala really in particular. Can you tell me uh, and our listeners about the materials that you used and how you stitched together a complicated story from one of Guatemala's most sensitive histories? Archives are not always terribly easy to access in Guatemala, to put it mildly. This archive of adoption files in particular was quite sensitive and had originally been gathered into something called the Archives of Peace, which was created as part of a peace agreement in Guatemala in 1996. So I thought, great, I'll be able to travel to Guatemala City, go to the CEPAS archive and consult these files. And the reason that they were made accessible to researchers had to do with the war crimes during the genocide era that I mentioned. So normally around the world, adoption files are closed to researchers for privacy reasons. And that's a very real concern. So in my book, I've used pseudonyms, I've used case numbers, and I've not used identifying details because these are people's lives. And in many cases, people are still living. So I thought, okay, Guatemala will be a real exception. I'll be able to consult these archives as part of the peace deal. By the time I traveled to Guatemala for the first time in 2014, a former general was the elected president of the country, and he had disbanded the so-called peace archives. So when I arrived and I started asking at the National Archives and at some other places, where might I be able to consult these documents? People said, oh, they've been lost. They've been destroyed. No one will let you see them. And one really enterprising young archivist told me, no, 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 don't give up so fast. Go to the Ministry of Social Welfare because they were the original government ministry that produced this paperwork. When the archives of peace were disbanded, they are very likely to have reabsorbed this paperwork. So go there. And if they tell you that they don't have an archive, really insist and just sit there until they attend to you is what she said in Spanish. I will make a side note here and say that I am an extremely white person who is very obviously an outsider in Guatemala. And I would be remiss not to mention that I am treated with a kind of level of access that my Guatemalan counterparts don't always get. So I am extremely uncomfortable with that role. But I do think in this case, it probably helped me access uh, the archives. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about what's effectively white privilege in Latin America when I uh, get to the end of this question. But I did go to the Ministry of Social Welfare, knocked on the door. They told me that there was no archive. I said, "Are there? Is there any paperwork? Is there anyone old? Is there anyone who's been here for a long time that I could interview? And finally, I got past the gate and um, there was an archive, right? There was a tiny little archive next to the interior soccer field that the Ministry of Social Welfare has. And this lovely gentleman named Mario Salguero was there and he was collecting paper. It's, it's an active archive. He was collecting paperwork on a daily basis. His colleagues were coming, bringing him files that had been closed. He was archiving them. And in fact, in his tiny little archive, he had all of the adoption paperwork. He was not authorized to let me consult it, but he guided me through the process of filling out what's effectively a Freedom of Information Act in Guatemala. Guatemala has a quite good law of access to public information. So he showed me how to legally petition to see the adoption files and I was granted access. If that's because I am a white foreigner, I'm not sure. If that's because I got past the gate and happened to meet the right person, I'm not sure. Is it a combination of all of these things? I'm not sure. I do know that I was able to consult the paperwork for about a year and a half for the purposes of writing this book. And then later access was denied to me by the same institution that had provided it. So now if you are an adoptee traveling to Guatemala to get pieces of your paperwork that are not available to you in the country to which you were adopted, 
you are granted access to those papers. But if you are a researcher trying to access those papers, my understanding is that they are currently closed. So thinking about archives, I'm also thinking about your work, not just with papers, but with human beings. You straddle the worlds of journalism and of academic history very elegantly. And some of our listeners may have read your wonderful piece from The New Yorker on the work of translation among Mayan language speaking migrants in the United States in the asylum system. I, I was curious reading the book whether you had met uh, Guatemalan adoptees in the United States who are learning about this history now how they've come to terms with it, and maybe how you think about the question of ethics in dealing with um, subjects who are very much alive and are navigating a tremendously fraught history themselves. Working on this book was always going to be an ethical knot, and I decided early on in consultation with my advisor and then later in consultation with my wonderful editor at HUP, you know, not to use names, identifying details for many, most of the cases, um, unless I had explicit permission from the person who was involved. And one thing I never imagined, despite my training as a journalist and my ongoing work as a journalist, one thing I never imagined was how many adoptees I would be in touch with over the years. Ever since I started working on this project, if you Google Guatemala adoption history, my name comes up. So adoptees started getting in touch with me already, oh, you know, in 2015, 2016. And the first kind of round of people who had been adopted from Guatemala who I met were my age, uh, mid-30s, happened to be living in Guatemala. There is a small community of adoptees who have since returned to their country of origin and made a life there. So I wrote about one of those people for Harper's Magazine in 2019. And he was an incredibly interesting person, Alberto Zun, who I also write about in the book, who was, un, you know, unlike Dolores Preat, he did, he never learned his origin story. Um, he learned that some of his papers had been falsified, but he never learned exactly what the circumstances of his adoption were. And the last time I was in touch with Alberto, he was still living in um, Guatemala and he was working in a call center there, which is a role that is accessible to him because of his command of French, the French language. And it has been my luck over the years to be in touch with there are two large adoptee organizations for Guatemalans just in the United States. Each of them have about 900 members. One of them is run by Gemma Givens, who is an incredibly interesting Kakchikel Maya woman who was raised in Berkeley, California. Gemma and I have been talking on the phone for years, and we finally got a chance to meet in person here in Boston. And um, I had her read parts of the book, or I asked her if she was would be willing to read parts of the book, and she did. It was really helpful to have her perspective on all of the events that I'm describing. The other group is run by Ben Fossen. I actually, as soon as I get off the phone with you all, I'm going to send him an advanced copy of the book. So if you read the dedication and the acknowledgments of the book, I say this book is for the adoptees. And it was never intended that way. I intended this as a purely historical project. But along the way, doing the research, what I realized is that the adoptees themselves were doing historical research and that we were kind of running on parallel tracks. So the, yeah, we were very much running on parallel tracks. So one of the unexpected gifts of working on this book has been becoming a kind of outsider, always outsider, but a member of that community. Rachel, before we break, uh, I was hoping we could ask you to uh, recommend to our listeners something, whether it's a book, a documentary, an album that you've been thinking a lot about these days. I just watched this film called El Equipo, which means the team in Spanish, and it follows a team of Argentine forensic anthropologists who were trained by a North American specialist named Clyde Snow. And this group of Argentine anthropologists became 
the most famous forensic anthropologists in the world. They worked in El Salvador. They worked with uh, victims' rights groups in Guatemala. They've worked in the Balkans. They've worked in parts of Africa. And what they do is help exhume and identify bones of people who've been forcibly disappeared by various governments. So this is an issue that's hugely important in Guatemala. And I was writing about a book that really centers on the Guatemalan and Argentine case. But I became aware of this new documentary that just came out in the UK. It's going to be available in the US starting in October. The documentary is by Bernardo Ruiz. And he has fascinating interviews with forensic anthropologists and also historical footage of some of the most important exhumations in Central America. So it's somewhat grim, but I've been thinking about that. You've touched upon it a little bit, but I wanted to know how your own story, where you grew up, the people who were the earliest influences on you, how that led to the work that you do today as a historian and a writer. It seems to make more sense in retrospect. I grew up in the Boston area with many Latin American classmates when I was in elementary school and middle school. And the elementary school classmates who I remember were either Uruguayan or Argentine. Their families were fleeing dirty war era politics in their home countries. And I also grew up with a number of adoptees. So I grew up with people who had been adopted from Colombia, from Ecuador. And I have a student now at Boston University who was just telling me that she graduated with a fairly small graduating class of, I think, 70 girls, and three of them were Guatemalan adoptees. So I think the new generation is growing up with Guatemalan adoptees in the U.S. I am of an older generation that grew up with Colombian, Peruvian, and Ecuadorian adoptees. So in retrospect, it seems to make sense, but it's not as if I came out of my childhood with a burning curiosity that I then satisfied with this book. That would be too neat. Thanks very much, Professor Rachel Nolan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And that's all for this episode of Amplifying the Past. For questions, comments, or show suggestions, send us an email at history at bu.edu or DM us on Instagram on at bu underscore history. Please take the time to subscribe to Amplifying the Past via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else finer podcasts are found and downloaded. If you enjoyed the show, please take the time to leave a review or recommend us to a friend. Thanks again to Rachel Nolan for joining us today. Amplifying the Past is a production of the Department of History at Boston University. I'm Benjamin Siegel, and please join us next time for more Conversations in History.